When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's PK and Puyol or PK and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. Guys, this year for Christmas, give her the next best thing to wearing nothing at all with soft, silky nudies pajamas available exclusively at pajamagram.com. Sensuous and smooth, nudies pajamas feel just like her own bare skin. Nudies is so seductive, she'll love the feeling of wearing next to nothing at all. And you'll love the way they look. Includes free gift packaging and delivery by Christmas is guaranteed. So visit pajamagram.com today. That's pajamagram.com. Guys, this year for Christmas, give her the next best thing to wearing nothing at all with soft, silky nudies pajamas available exclusively at pajamagram.com. Sensuous and smooth, nudies pajamas feel just like her own bare skin. Nudies is so seductive, she'll love the feeling of wearing next to nothing at all. And you'll love the way they look. Includes free gift packaging and delivery by Christmas is guaranteed. So visit pajamagram.com today. That's pajamagram.com. Welcome to the Barcelona Podcast, episode 114. And this opinion is brought to you by the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community. I'm Dan Hilton, and on the line, we have now a sports writer for BBC Sport, Sport 360, and more, as well as the author of the new book, Lionel Messi and the Art of Living. It's Andy West. Andy, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. So while your book is available in the UK and Ireland and most of Europe already, ebook formats and the like, it won't be released in the US until April. And so we're going to have you on again then to get an even deeper dive on the book. But for now, let's just, I think we're going to hit a few talking points to generate some buzz about it. And again, if it's people in the U.S. are going to have to wait on it. 
it'll, it'll be enough excitement uh, that, uh, that it'll get us going till April. But again, for all of our other listeners, UK, Ireland, and, and the rest of Europe, and pretty much around the world, uh, we just want to get into a few of these talking points. So I think let's get started. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So I do want to start. There's an excerpt from your book that you put on uh, you put on Twitter from the book about Messi's 2012 world record of 91 goals in that false nine position, and then the mm. process of him abandoning that position, not going back to it. And I mm. guess the simple question would be: Do you think it could ever work again for him? And if so, why or why not? Mm, um, I think it's dependent upon the the situation that's around him as well. What coach does he have and what players does he have? I think the, the, the reason, uh, the, the big reason that worked so well was that he had not just Xavi next to him in midfield, also Iniesta at his peak, uh, the manager Pep Guardiola, of course, who instigated it initially, incredibly athletic fullbacks who could get up and down at the width of the pitch and cover that area for him. Um, forwards who suited the role as well, like David Villa and Pedro, who who could play wide but come inside, play with intelligence as well. So I don't know if it could, if all those ingredients could come together again. And I think that's the interesting thing about Messi that I actually talk about in more detail in that chapter is how he's always been um, adaptable. He's always been open to change. You know, he went when he went to that false nine position. He was already one of the best players in the world, probably the best player in the world back in 2010. And, and a lot of Barca fans, I'm sure, will remember the very first game that they used it for was, was at Real Madrid. And they won 6-2, Messi being moved from the right wing to a false nine role that he'd never played before, the team had never played before. But he just took to it because he was open to that new role. And then, of course, that happened again when, when the false nine, the, all those ingredients I mentioned sort of fell apart a bit. Guardiola left, Xavi aged, some of the other players left, um, and it just wasn't working anymore. And and people will remember during Tata Martino's season that he was still in the false nine role. It was his least successful season personally, and obviously the team didn't win anything as well. So then he moved on and started playing right wing when they got brought Suarez in, Neymar was settled. He, He moved to a different position, and that for me is fascinating that someone like Messi, even the most talented player in the world, arguably in history, is willing to change. He's willing in the middle of his career, at the peak of his, of his, of his powers, to start doing something different. And I think that's really fascinating. And, and, that, and that's exactly the kind of thing that I, I try to get across in the book, that, that he has done things over the course of his career that really apply to all of us in, in, in different perspectives. And there have been times as well that it seems that he has clashed with at least it's been reported or rumored that he's clashed with managers, whether it would be Luis Enrique or particularly in the time that he's taken on a, a larger leadership role at the club. But do you find or give credence to any time? As you mentioned, he has been very adaptable. And do you find that as he's grown older, older and into this leadership role at Barcelona that you know he doesn't seem like a guy that's ever undermined the managers, that he has kind of not blindly followed the directions, but he is he has never thrown a grenade in, in a manager's plant, and he's always tried to go with the style and the system that whoever was brought in to try to not say fix the club, but take the club in a different direction. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned Luis Enrique, and that was um, probably the highest profile spat that he supposedly had, which was in, in middle of Luis Enrique's first season when the team hadn't been doing great. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people will remember 
the, the start of the year, I think it was the first game of 2015, the team lost at Real Sociedad. He'd been left on the bench. He and Neymar were both left on the bench because he came back late from, from his break in South America for Christmas. And the following day, there, there was all sorts of rumours flying around. He missed the, the uh, annual Three Kings training session they do for the, for, for the kids. He wasn't there. Um, he started following Instagram, um, sorry, Chelsea on Instagram, if you, if you remember that. And there was a lot of talk of rebellion, that he was rebelling against Luis Enrique. And the very next game actually was Atletico Madrid. And that was the first time he went to that right wing role. And then we never really got to the bottom of what happened that week. Did Messi say, I'm playing right wing now? Or did Luis Enrique say, now you're playing in this position? And, and, and they came to that agreement between them somehow. Um, but yeah, going back to your question, does he undermine managers? I don't think he he undermines them, but I think he's got a very clear sense of what he wants to do and what he thinks the team should do. And he's very, very clear that the team should be built around him in a way that would allow him to shine, but also still playing as a team. I mean, we've got to talk about Argentina with, with this, with the way they were in the World Cup, especially. There was a lot of talk this summer that he was trying to him and Mascherano were trying to control Argentina because they didn't like the way that San Paoli was managing managing it. So I think it's a bit of bit of both. I, I don't, you know, he's not an angel, and he's certainly aware of his ability and his power and his influence as well. And I'm, there are times, I'm sure, regularly when he makes it clear what he wants. But I think what he wants is what he believes to be for the good of the team. He definitely doesn't chase personal glory. Um, and so there have been times, I'm sure, when he's forced through changes tactically that he thinks are for, for the better of the team. And, and obviously that will sometimes involve clashes with managers. And you brought up Argentina. And I think it's so funny, though, considering the number of finals he's made recently with his country compared to the number of even recent Champions League finals he's captured or even finals he's been to, again, 2015 being the last one, in the same time period. And yet you hear that the media almost covers two different Messi's, one for Argentina, one for Barcelona. And obviously the one for Barcelona is treated in the media much more favorably, ironically yes. enough, than the one for Argentina. So, so how did you go about hashing out those differences and almost the different way that the media treats him depending on what jersey he's wearing at the time? And do you think there is a way that in the future his legacy is going to be combined between those, those two different players, if you will? Yeah, well, it's, it's such a huge topic, isn't it? I'll just start with your last question. Will, will his legacy be combined? No, I don't think it will. Unless he is able to win a trophy with Argentina, say he comes back next summer and they win Copa America, which is not impossible, that could happen, then if that doesn't happen, then I think he will always be remembered by a, a lot of people as, what an amazing player, best player in history for Barcelona, but he failed internationally. I think that's very simplistic. But the problem is we have to, we seem compelled to polarise. Yes or no. There's no nuance. There's no subtleties. Everything is judged as a black or a white. And the truth of, of, of Messi's international career is that he's actually been pr pretty successful. You know, four finals he, he's taken that team to. Three in a row, 2014 and 16 Copa America final. 2015, the World Cup final. And then especially when you look at the last three, those last three finals, two of them went to penalty shootouts. One of them was an extra time defeat. So they were really, really close. And, and it was just, you know, a few bounces of the ball here or there, a missed penalty, 
a missed chance, a save by a goalkeeper, and it would have made all the difference. You know, the, the 2015 final, Higuain misses an easy chance. If he'd scored it without Messi doing anything different at all, that the whole perception of him internationally would have been turned on its head. Even though he hadn't done anything different at all, it would have just been Higuain scoring a chance rather than missing it. Um, so I think, unfortunately, that there will inevitably be this this inaccurate polarisation of, of the way he's portrayed internationally. He'll be seen as a failure, no doubt about it, unless he does win from here on. That's not fair and it's not accurate because he has got to three finals and and they were very close in 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 those finals. But I just think it's the way it is. You know, you know how it, how, how sports media works. It's it's extreme. It's one or the other. There's no yes but and look at the circumstances. Um, so I just think it's it's unfair on him that that he'll be judged that way. But, you know, it works the other way as well. When Barca won every trophy in 2009, six trophies in a year, Guardiola's first season, one of the reasons was because they got lucky at Stamford Bridge. Iniesta scoring in the 90-whatever minute. If he hadn't, they wouldn't have won the Champions League that year and no one would be looking back at that, that Guardiola team now as this invincible side. So it does work both ways as well. But certainly in terms of his international career, I think he is going to have a, a tarnished legacy and, a, and I don't think it's fair. Yeah, it is a, an interesting thought experiment to think, well, what if Messi had been born in a country, say, of, of Estonia, and now most likely he's not even making those international tournaments, or at, or would he have been expected to take, again, a, a team, I, I just, Estonia was just the first country I thought of, but yeah, uh, yeah. just a, a country. U.S., that, why not? <laughs> well, well, I was I was picking one that you don't necessarily see on, on professional teams often around right. Europe, you know, right. I, I, other than... Um, yeah, I can think of one or two Estonian players, but other than that, but nevertheless, it isn't about that. Yeah. <laughs> but the, po- no, the point is, like, what if he takes a smaller country, that uh, a footballing country, if you will, that's not known for its pedigree and not known for producing a, a ton of world-class players in the way that Argentina is, you know, would Messi yeah. have been able? And if he misses those tournaments, does that count against him? And I think, what, I mean, the example I think of easily is Ryan Giggs, obviously, with, with Wales, yes. where there are yes. times where if, if he didn't, I don't think that actually tarnished his legacy with Wales at all. We don't even think of him as an international, you know, a, a, a guy who played too much for his national team or had his yeah. legacy defined by his national team other than Man United. Yeah. And, and going back a little bit further, George Best, you know, never even played in a World Cup um, because he was born in Northern Ireland, who at that time, even now, they're, they're a weak nation, a small nation, so no one expected them to do anything. So, yeah, I'm sure if he had been born to a different country would have made a difference in the perception. Um, and, and I think another inaccuracy, the way people see Argentina, Messi with Argentina, is they go, ah, oh, but look at that team, Di Maria, Higuain, Aguero, all those great players. Yeah, they're all forwards. You can't play them all. Where's the balance? Who are the great defenders during that era? Who are the great defensive midfielders during that era? They haven't really had a great balanced team. They've had a lot of good forwards, but that's not enough to, to win things. Yeah, and I think that space is such an important thing that you mentioned. I mean, that's what that's Barcelona's bread and butter. And what the wonderful thing about the ascension of Messi was, was the space that, depending on whether he was growing up with Ronaldinho or, again, as you mentioned, with David Villa or now later on in his career with Luis Suarez. And so the question I would ask, not even now about the book, about present Barcelona, you had mentioned on Twitter that you rewatched Real Batiste, and while now it's, you know, a week and a half in the path, it's past, it's still the latest game that we're thinking about, and there's no denying that with age, Messi cannot press and pressure the way he used to, but how do you think Barcelona, uh, the present Barcelona, should cope with that right side of the field 
without allowing teams to overrun them uh, on the flank. Yeah, I think it can be done. I mean, they... Messi for the last few years hasn't really done a lot of defending. He's not not in 2015 when they won the treble. He wasn't the kind of player who chased back a lot. Um, I think you just got to get the structure of the team right. And one way that they often do it is is by sort of asking Rakitic to cover two positions. So they they flip between four three three when they've got the ball and Messi on the right side of the front three and Rakitic in. Midfield three, and then when they lose possession, they they try to swap it back to a four four two, which means Rakitic goes a little bit wider to cover the fullback. Messi goes more central um, to to be behind Suarez, um, and that's one way you can do it. There's many ways that you can do it. I just think it's it's getting the structure right, and we saw in that game against Betis an an incredible game, the most amazing game I've been to for years. The, the structure isn't always there for Barca, and it certainly wasn't on Sunday. And it's interesting. I think this Barca team is is still evolving structurally. We're not entirely sure what the best eleven is, and of course, you you've got to think more than just the best eleven because it's unlikely you'll reach the the key time of the season with all eleven players available. Um, so it's still a team in in evolution, and you know I think ultimately we will see Messi spending more time centrally, maybe moving away from the right-wing role he's been in the last few weeks. Maybe Coutinho will have to pick up a bit more slack defensively. He's not a natural defender as well. That's probably a part of his game that he'll have to improve. But Valverde's got a fair amount of work between now and March and April, which is when really Barca's season gets serious because we all know how much they're focusing on the Champions League this year. Well, I do have one more for you on on the great Lionel Messi, and then we'll switch topics just briefly. But the last thing for Messi is, and I don't want to give away too much from your book either, but we talked on the show last week about how players uh, like a LeBron James and the way that sports stars are covered now in the media, where every single hour of his day seemingly is blocked off and people know where he is and know what he's doing. Do you find that uh, Messi, again, like a lot of the greats or the greatest and a lot of their sports and their arts are, obviously he loves football and that's what his life revolves around but do you find that there is I guess to say this balance and this this uh, dedication to the sport that you just don't see in in so many other people and it's just an in a, you know an odd in an odd aberration yeah. to see someone so dedicated to it at all hours of the day yeah I think there's the, the that's uh, undoubtedly a big factor behind why he's become the player that he has. He was so devoted to football to the extent that he was willing at the age of 13 to move to a new continent continent, and just took it in his stride because he just wanted to play football. And he's had that incredible professionalism throughout his career. He's he's a quiet guy. He doesn't do a lot. In the last few years, he's, he's um, developed another passion, obviously his family. You know, he's got three kids um, and he's, he's very much a family man. You know, he, he, takes his kids to school every day, just walks in walks in with them to school and picks them up at the end of the day like any other parent. And he obviously is a very active, hands-on father. You can tell that. Um, and that's his other passion. But his other one is football. And I think it's a lesson that, I mean, we can move on if you want to talk about it, but Dembélé needs to follow that example of someone who's got immense talent. But if you don't put in the work rate to, to match that, you won't get the best out of yourself. That's something that Messi's always done and, and continues to do now, yeah. 
Yeah, well, I think we can we can actually jump, as you mentioned, to Dembele. With the way that the media is covering him at the moment, and again, this is something that's hotly debated as well, where yeah. it seems like after every negative result, there is blame put on either Ernesto Valverde or Dembele. And yeah. do you get the sense that you're almost being forced to pick sides to not say whose story is straight, but is it that Valverde can't get the best out of Dembele or is that Dembele's character seems to be getting his own way of getting the best out of himself? Yeah, a bit of both. The, the, I think Valverde is a very um, conservative coach. He's disciplined, organized, and he likes his teams to be. I mean, you, you might have seen the footage from uh, the Betis game where he was yelling at Piquet late in the game. Piquet was going forward, trying to get an equalizer. And Valverde was saying, but they're going to score again, wanting to get him back. So that's that shows you his mindset. And a player like Dembele doesn't fit into that. And I think more widely, Dembele is having a real problem fitting in at Barca for a number of reasons. Um, I think, firstly, he's um, an outsider. He, he's not come from within the Barca system or anything like it. He doesn't play the, the, the way that Barca do traditionally. He's not a, a Cruyffian type player at all. He's, he's not comfortable keeping the ball. He's much more comfortable being vertical, taking the shortest route possible towards goal. Um, his style just doesn't fit with Barca. He's quite um, a casual character. At times he looks lazy. He makes silly mistakes and then doesn't seem to be that bothered to rectify them. So there's all those things that I think are counting against him. But but something that's absolutely undeniable as well is that he's incredibly talented. And those weaknesses, I think, could also be a huge strength because he gives something that nobody else in the team has. Even Messi, I think. He, he can give attacking qualities, the unpredictability, the directness, the pace, the ability to, to destabilise defence quickly, he can do that in a way that no other Barcelona player can. And they really will need those qualities, I think, in the knockout stages of the Champions League. You know, you're under pressure away from home against a big opponent, chasing you, the game, putting you under pressure. Dembélé is the player out of anyone who will be able to, to counter against teams, hurt teams on the break. So hopefully they'll find a way of making him fit, making him fit into this squad and fit into the team. And hopefully he'll find a way of realising he's got to take it a bit more seriously. You know, all these stories that keep coming out about him being late, not working hard enough in training, his indiscipline, that the mistakes he makes on the pitch. Yes, he is portrayed sometimes unfairly, I think, and people are too quick to jump on him. But I also think he's got responsibility as well. He's He's an adult now and he's got these responsibilities to live up to his reputation, his price tag, the expectations of being a player at a club like Barcelona. That's on him. And there's no better example than Messi, who's someone who's always done that. And I really hope that he can just get his act together in the next few months and become the player that he should be for Barca. Well, we'll finish this up is you know, speaking about the unfair I guess the pressure is merited when you come to Barcelona to manage, but the unfair treatment, I think, of Ernesto Valverde. And you also recently wrote a story for Sport360 about Kike Setien, obviously the manager at Real Batiste, and the growing tidal wave of Kules calling for him to manage and become the next manager for the Le- Blaugrana after the days of Ernesto Valverde. And I don't want to give everything away in that article as well, um, but I don't. But I do kind of want to hear you, you know, take it in the opposite direction, actually, 
and ask what potential pitfalls you could see in an appointment of Kike Setien and whether or not, you know, those would overrule because it seems on the surface that he is almost the opposite murder manager for Ernesto Valverde. So do you find even that Kool Aid are saying, no, we want Kike Setien, he's all that Ernesto Valverde isn't and then in those at those times that they they'd be wanting the same thing back. Yeah. Um, well, I'll start by saying that, that yeah, I'm, I'm a big, big admirer of Setien. And I think that his his methods are perfect for Barcelona. But I don't um, mean that that should happen now, right now. I think Valverde is doing doing a fine job um, considering who he is, what we can expect from him. He's not the he's not Guardiola. He's not going to give you that kind of team. But from what he could have done from when he was appointed to now, you know, he's, he's won a double. But for one ridiculous night in Rome, who knows? They might have won the Champions League. They're top of the league this season. Okay, not not always playing well, but they are top of the league and they're they've been uh, commanding in the Champions League. So he's done a decent job. But I just think he's not a long-term manager for Barca because, yeah, you know, this is a very long, potentially a very long conversation. But the the whole idea of the philosophy of the club, I think, is so important. For long-term sustained success, I think it's it's vital that you have an understanding of who we are. What 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 are we as a club? What's our identity? And Barca have had that for years before Guardiola, obviously with Rijkaard and um, Cruyff and Rinos Michels before that. So for a long time, everyone has known this is what Barcelona means. This is the club. But I think they're in danger of losing it at the moment because we haven't had that progression from La Masia through to the first team in the last few years, which which can happen because maybe the talent isn't there. And now Luis Enrique kind of moved away from that. He was more direct. Valverde moving away from that even more. And I just think it's being eroded gradually. And if the next manager also doesn't fit that mould, I think really you're in danger of, of having those foundations of identity being lost when when Busquets and Messi and Piquet retire, where's that identity going to come from? Unless it is something that is um, carried on through the management of the club, through the coaching, and and that's why I, I like Setien more than anyone else I can see at the moment because he I think embodies that way of playing more than anyone else. So that's that's why I, I think he would be great for the job. I mean, you asked me though the pitfalls and and the obvious one he's never won anything. You know he's been a Las Palmas, Lugo, Real Betis. Okay, he's done a great job there. Played nice football, won a few games, but he's never won a trophy. And I think that would be a burden for him. That if he went to Barca and his first few weeks weren't successful, people would be looking at him and go, yeah, he can't manage a big club. And I think that it would be very important for him to start well if he did take over. Um, So that would, would be, for me, the biggest potential problem that he'd have that he's never won anything and and he's unlikely to while he's at Betis before he does go to, to camp now if he does yeah and he's not a spring chicken either he is he's 60 years old so if at any time he would come to Barcelona it would be even after now I know you know there are managers that have managed in, in much later in in age but nevertheless and you know Andy we'd love to have you all back on later to talk even more about your book in a few months when it's released in the US but also to get in again to the philosophy of the club and um, the identity of the club at the moment is I think just the most interesting narrative currently going on and being discussed uh, amongst you know they, there's this line they say that you know there's the purists and there's the people just looking for the results but I, I think yeah. all Kool-Aids want something somewhere in the middle that you're getting results yeah. with that kind of you know style and identity and that can be I mean, that is simply the hardest ask that you can still be a global one of the best in the world, but yet you also, you know, really do need to play 
a certain way and with a certain select group of players, as you mentioned, trying your best to try to bring in academy players, even if the, the talent might not be there in a, in a vacuum. And that, that's just, yeah, again, and, a and, and I think the, um, it's, it's so important to take a long-term view. People want results. Of course they do. Everyone wants results tomorrow. Everyone wants to win the next game. But the way to achieve results, I really believe, is to take the long-term view. Maybe have to suck up a few defeats, but if you set the foundations right, believe in what you're doing, do it in a in, in a correct way, um, do it consistently, then that will lead to results in the long term. And I think the the example, if you turn it on on its head, is Manchester United, who have had no identity since Sir Alex Ferguson left. They keep changing from one manager to the next, all completely in, incompatible with each other, and look at where they are. So. That's the danger, I think, of what could happen to Barca if they don't maintain this philosophy that that has seen them be so strong for so long. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and Andy, again, the focus of this was talking about your book, but I, I love all the different things that we got into. And I would also love to hear where we could hear from, from more from you, because again, it's not just the the book about Messi that's come out in the UK and most of Europe and, and the world, but again, you also do a lot of other writing. And where can people continue to find you and and hear from you? Um, well, I'm on Twitter, Andy West 01, um, and the, the most common place I write is sport360.com. Um, I cover most Barca games for them and, and write quite a few opinion pieces as well and pop up in various places, BBC sometimes. But, but yeah, check out Twitter and Sport360 is the most common ones. So again, not for our U.S. fans, but for everybody else, the link is going to be in the description for getting Andy's book on Amazon. And obviously, if you just hit him in the show notes, you'll see that his Twitter bio is linked there. So Andy, thanks so much for coming on. We're excited to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Yeah, anytime. Always happy to come on. Thank you. Let's shift gears now and welcome on one of our contributing writers for BarcelBlog.com, Emil Avanesian, making his Barcelona podcast debut. Emil, I know you normally live in New York. You're, I guess, my one of my neighbors, but you are joining us now all the way from Italy. How's it going today? Um, great to be here, Dan. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I am actually in Italy. My wife and I have a long planned vacation, so I am coming to you from the overcast but gorgeous uh, coast of Sorrento. Well, wonderful that you're able to join us finally on the show on the Barcelona podcast. And Emil is here to help me this week with La Ronda, so let's get right into it. First with a question from Douglas, and it actually wraps in with a question from Christopher. And Douglas asks, with Rakitic out for the next few matches, what's our best midfield lineup going forward? Vidal or Sergi Roberto, or will Valverde surprise us? And Christopher asks, with both Coutinho and now Rakitic possibly on the shelf for a while, do you think we'll get a chance to see Alenia play meaningful minutes, or will he still be reserved for the Copa del Rey? Now, let's do Alenia second. First, I'd like to hear your response, Emil, about the Rakitic situation. So he was playing forever in every match, basically for more than a year and a half. But finally, he's seated with the injury. So how do you see that shaping out now? I mean, I think in his absence, sort of the, the, the midfield option that's currently sort of on the roster and I guess kind of indoctrinated into the first team that fits best, I would actually probably go with Arthur first. And, you know, assuming he can kind of shoulder the kind of workload that, that Rakitic did. I mean, not that, I mean, Rakitic has played an obscene amount of minutes and games in the past, you know, year, year and a half. But I... I think that Arthur just sort of for kind of the way that he, I feel like he meshes well with Busquets. He has kind of an, an eye for attack, but he's sort of 
he, he's a better distributor. I mean, I, I hate the, uh, the Xavi comparisons only because it's unfair to compare anyone to Xavi, but in the sense of kind of laying back a little bit, but distributing and understanding how the attack is developing in front of him. Well, I do want to, I do want to interject then though. So, I mean, I think Busquets and Arter are going to continue to be the two starters. So if if you're saying that Arter is going to be dropping back a little bit deeper to be the Rakitic role, do you see that then Vidal would be the person who'd be the farthest of the midfield three forward? Um, Who's that third midfielder, I guess? So, I mean, I think the third midfielder in that sense, I mean, I could see it being Alenia. I also think that this might be an opening for, uh, for Malcolm to get some more time on the field. And, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's going to be a little bit of uh, a little bit of a trial trial and error situation uh, because you're right. I mean, I think the having Vidal play a little bit deeper is another viable option with with Arthur kind of playing further up. You know, the the funny thing is that for all of the kind of the resources that have been thrown at the midfield, um, the the two guys that have gone down have been sort of the the most vital the most vital parts of kind of facilitating the attack. So I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan of Arthur. I would love to see him figure prominently and really kind of, I don't want to say stake his claim because I don't know if there's really a, an open spot for him to take, but but really kind of stake his claim in the in the rotation. I mean, I think we are going to see a lot more of Vidal and I am like, and I'm hopeful that uh, Malcolm, who I was very optimistic about, you know, when he was, when he was brought aboard, will actually get a chance to get some minutes and ideally kind of, you know, uh, establish himself as a you know as a contributing member of the team as well. Yeah, I think uh, the two situations that Valverde could go with here is having a three-man midfield where I, I do believe it, it would be Arturo Vidal, Artur, and Sergio Busquets with a front three in front of them. But for for me, I, I think against Atletico Madrid upcoming, and obviously depending on when you're listening to this, most likely you listen to this before the match against Atletico. But I could see Valverde going, especially against Atletico Madrid, with a four-four-two with Sergio yep. Roberto as that right midfielder, and then you put either uh, Malcolm and the way things are going, we'll get into Dembele in a second, but mm. one of the two of them on the left midfield spot, and then you have in front the front two obviously of Suarez and Messi, and then Arter and Busquets would be the two in the midfield. So I yep. could see a four-four-two like that where Arter and Busquets obviously are very defensive in those roles, and then as in the back four and and uh, Ter Stegen. Um, so I think that's how it certainly could shake out. I think it's one of the two. I think Vidal starts in a four three three, and Roberto yep. starts in a four four two. And I think that's a little bit of a cop out, Douglas, actually. But I think it's a pretty clear uh, way to go about it. And I wouldn't be surprised if Valverde, based on the next few matches, um, he he kind of goes against. I mean, we're at the point in the season. At the end of November, at that beginning of December, when Rakitic and Coutinho are out, that Valverde chooses and opts to go with formations that are counter to their opposition, as opposed to just being able to slot players in, which is unfortunate, because I think that brings us to the second question by Christopher about Elenia. Is he going to get meaningful minutes? And on the, the topic of, you know, of Elenia, you know, it, it's, his future is rightly the thing that we have been talking about this week. And after his latest performance for Barcelona B this season in the 2-1 win over Cornea, it's clear that he's head and shoulders above everyone around him on the field. That's including his B teammates. And with Pochettino, the Tottenham manager, he was sitting right next to Elenia's agent. And yet the media says that, well, it's because he's looking at Ricky Puj 
and that Pochettino has been excited about Puj, has been was connected with him over the summertime. But now that Puj has that hundred million release clause, you know, are they? Mm-hmm. Is it a loan for Puj, or you know, again, is it a? They want to try to bring Eleni in on loan. You know, I doubt. I guess he was in there. He was. I believe he was in. Uh, Barcelona for something to do with the Catalan Catalan Federation. Obviously, he's a former manager at Espanyol, uh, and that, mm. so he does have a connection to the region. So it's not like he's there for no reason, but he did particularly come to the uh, the Barcelona B match to to watch for a reason. Um, and for me, you know, a possible loan in January for Elena at this point does make sense. Uh, obviously, you'd hope that there would be no buyback option. Tottenham did reinforce their squad last summer, so maybe. He's looking for something coming in January. But it is incredible to me, though, Emil, to think that Tottenham would have more guaranteed minutes for the player than the team that raised him and sees him every day in training. I think that's just it's a wild idea to me. But um, I think it's not that it's a disappointing one as well, but I don't know. I, I think you, there's two camps that the people who haven't gotten to see him with Barcelona B, uh, yes, it's a third tier, but I feel like they don't really understand that he's ready for the first team. And yes, he's still young, but again, he's... He's just a few months younger than Dembele, and we all get on him. And Alenia is, I don't know. I think I think he's ready. I completely agree. I mean, I think the, and I've, I've kind of written about this in the past and just had conversations with people, you know, about this in the past, that, you know, just with regard to Barcelona, and I think there's been comparisons made over the last couple of years with Barcelona and, and Real Madrid as far as the sort of the, the nurturing versus buying of uh, of your talent. And... You know, coming off of sort of the the absolute kind of pinnacle golden generation of La Masia, the last you know handful of years, you know the the Barcelona youth ranks haven't really turned out any any stars. I mean the but the ideal scenario is that if you can round out your squad with even kind of useful to above average players who don't cost you you know forty fifty sixty million, it really kind of frees up the finances when, you know, a team wants to make a big splash. And also for a player like Alenia in particular, who's kind of so indoctrinated into the the way the Barcelona play, understands the, the philosophy of the club, and, you know, is just, he's kind of a, a, a tailor-made, you know, prospect that could, that could rise through the ranks. And just based on the way that he's played recently, I mean, like you said, it's, you know, on the one hand, yes, it's the third tier, but on the other hand, I mean, I think he's just, he's shown himself to be too good for that level. And I mean, I would be, I would be surprised if even, you know, the, the Segunda would be, you know, too much for him. And in, in light of the injuries that the Barca are looking at in the midfield, I mean, I think this would be an ideal scenario to start, you know, increasing his workload a little bit, just exposing him to first tier minutes. Um, you know, the, the pressure would be elevated, but you know, the, if he's going to develop into the kind of player that he potentially could develop into, eventually the first year minutes and the pressure are going to come. And like you said, while he is young, he's not, you know, he's not so young that it's unfathomable that he could step in and at the very least make a contribution and just, you know, contribute useful minutes. Yeah, it is. It, we're getting to a point with Elenia where it, it is not a do or die moment for the player individually, but it, it's a question where, Barcelona's going to have to be asking how is he going to get some some meaningful minutes and whether or not that's on loan or whether that's with Barcelona. And again, Barcelona have been pretty adverse to sending their youngsters out on loan in a way that other, you know, global giants do. 
so mm. that I think is a big storyline for the January window. Um, and then Douglas followed that up asking another question about Abel Reeves and Oriel Busquets, who are both playing with the B team as well. And just a mm. quick update for Douglas. Uh, Abel, well, not for Douglas, but for everybody. And Abel Reeves at the moment, uh, he is scoring a little bit more than he was at the beginning of the season, but he is still splitting time with, with Rafa Mujica. And he's a guy who can play on the wing, can play at number nine. And he's, again, still continuing to be a leader for the, the Spanish youth teams. So he's constantly getting called in with Juan Miranda to those teams, along with uh, Anaki Pena as well. And so Abel Reeves is still at least, I'd say, two years away. Um, not even next year did I think he could contribute to the first team, but I, I think that's possibly the following year. Um, and being a striker, it's even more worrisome when he's if he's not getting game time. So in, when he's pushing between the B team and the first team, I think, again, maybe it's sometime next season or the following year, uh, I think he's a great candidate to go out on, to a smaller team on loan, uh, particularly in Spain. Uh, and I think... At that point, Alvarez will be able to take the next step. But again, he's always shown uh, so much promise. And he, it's not that he's lost the promise, but uh, the club is particularly at, at the B level uh, with Pimienta is bringing him along slowly. So it's a bright spot to see. And Oral Busquets, meanwhile, uh, again, a reminder on him, he's working his way back from a torn meniscus. He started the last five games for Barcelona B, going 90 minutes twice and getting the captain's armband for the last three for Barcelona B. And just in terms of fitness, he is still, of what I've seen, a ways away from the first team. But if he can get back to where he was pre-injury, there's no reason why he can't be part of the plan starting next season. So I wouldn't be surprised if Oral Busquets, uh, again, uh, a season from now, and that means next year, is going on the U.S. tour and kind of breaking in there, whether it's under Valverde or a new manager. I think Busquets, uh, Oral Busquets, that being, you know, he does get comparisons to the other Busquets, and that is for a reason. They play the same uh, position at defensive midfield. And I think when even when you watch Barcelona B, that Ordo Busquets, again, because he doesn't jump out on the page or, or jump off the screen, if you will, for Barcelona B as well, it's hard to see or notice when he's going to be back to his best. But certainly when he was back to the best, when he is at his best, the Barcelona B team will be controlling the midfield a lot more than they are. I think at this point, at times, they're getting overrun by uh, much older, more experienced, and we'll say more physical, uh, to put it kindly, uh, yeah. older players at that at that third division level. And Oral Husquez is one of those few players, though, that does have the physicality and has kind of grown a little bit more in his body. So when he, I think, again, you'll know when he has gained his fitness, when the stats for the Barcelona B team uh, in terms of possession, just in, basically in terms of overall quality, has just risen that extra level. It, you know, I agree. I mean, with, particularly with Busquets, I mean, I think he's, I think the timeline that you kind of laid out is sort of just a very logical one to follow. And that, you know, he, you know, plays out this season, you know, gets back to full strength and really just kind of regains his sea legs with, with Barcelona B. And, um, you know, for him in particular, I, I do think, like you, like you said, kind of taking him on the, on the summer friendly tour. And I mean, even if he is just kind of on the sort of the, the, the Copa del Rey and kind of the, the dead rubber Champions League circuit for, you know, for the main team, you know, with perhaps spot appearances, at least early, you know, kind of in the first half of next season as he sort of finds his level in, in the Liga. I think that would that would make a lot of sense. Uh, one thought it was kind of interesting what you brought up uh, with regard to Elena also. Uh, when you were saying kind of a, a do or die point, you know, 
not so much for him, but so much, you know, regarding his his future for Barcelona. I kind of also think about it too with with players like him, but him in particular, that he's clearly a good player. He's still young, but you know, he's not he's not sort of like a baby that someone's gonna someone's gonna buy as kind of a an absolute sort of young prospect. In terms of him thinking about his own career also, you know, it's not it's not inconceivable that if he doesn't really see a roadmap to getting meaningful playing time in the first team and sort of, you know, kind of really establishing his career and really kind of building his career, um, you know, it, it, it's not crazy to think that he might begin to look at places where, you know, he can consistently play and play top flight minutes and, you know, really kind of cement his career. Yeah, and a reminder that, you know, Rakitic is not a spring chicken. He's over 30, as is Vidal. Um, so you do look at their long-term prospects. And even long-term, for Vidal, I mean, he could be gone in the summertime, uh, again, just based on his age and his fit in, in the club. And yes, yep. I think the club felt like they needed his profile. Um, but moving forward, you know, you're going to wonder if other guys just don't fit in there. Again, if they trust the Busquets or if they bring in another midfielder. Um, in, in, in the summertime. And speaking of, again, young players, um, it, we got a question from Scott. And again, I think I'm going to step out of this one because I, <laughs> I've talked a lot about Dembele on this show. But with Suarez's <laughs> recent comments about Dembele, and Emil, you can bring some light to those as well, help him or alienate him even more with the rest of the squad. Um, and, you know, Suarez, these comments come on the back of comments from his national team coach in Deschamps as well as PK and Valverde also publicly talking about Dembele. So it seems like everyone kind of has something to say about Dembele. And, you know, it seems like quotes are, you can take quotes at face value, but I don't know. There's, it's so confusing to me, Emil, with the media and different medias saying different things about Dembele. It's, it's a frustrating thing. And, you know, the big point here that I want you to kind of get to, Emil, is whether or not Suarez's comments, you know, being so public as they are, are a positive thing or negative thing and you know whether or not and you and I were both talking off the air too about the NBA how the NBA even is a very public league where guys kind of hash out their beef in front of reporters and they're able to squash it sometimes and things work out uh, and certain players come around and then other times it just doesn't work out yeah so well um so on the Dembele thing I mean you know you uh when you and I first started talking about this the the first thing that I think of when I think about uh, Dembele is just it's a lot, you know. I mean, just in terms of from the very beginning when he was brought in, kind of in the in the aftermath of the of the sort of the the Neymar circus, and he gets hurt, so he's not able to really kind of log any minutes. And then you know, kind of it seemed like soon after that, you know, he and uh, he and Valverde weren't kind of ever really on the same page. And it seemed like the season when he started, you know he wasn't necessarily playing at his kind of electric sort of Dortmund best, but he was scoring goals and he was kind of, he was getting minutes and he was involved and to watch sort of the, the way that the situation has, has kind of deteriorated. I mean, even, even in games when it's, when, when it's going well for the team or even when he's playing reasonably well, it's, you don't really see kind of a, a, a synergy between him and particularly him and, and Suarez, I believe. But um, I think what Suarez is saying, I mean, kind of just as far as, you know, focusing, buckling down and, you know, really kind of understanding who he is and what it is to be a, 
a star, not just for a big club, but for kind of a club on the level of Barcelona and, you know, one that's under so much media scrutiny locally and globally. And, you know, the, the fans are intense and, you know, just the, you know, the, the scrutiny and the, the need to sort of win La Liga perennially and, you know, contend for the Champions League every year. It, it really seems like Dembele, I think almost, I get the impression that he almost felt like he had arrived with his arrival at Barcelona and not that this was now sort of a time to sort of buckle down and establish himself as a superstar. I think between the, the, the prestige of arriving at Barcelona and being the, the mega bucks signing that was intended to, if not replace Neymar, you know, at least kind of be the, be sort of the young ascendant star that, you know, that Neymar had been. I feel like he sort of saw the arrival of Barcelona as more of the destination and not kind of the, the start of a new chapter in his career. And, you know, I mean, the, the more you read about him, I mean, it's, you know, one day he's scoring, you know, a glorious goal against Raya Vallecano to, you know, to level the game, you know, before Barcelona was on to win late. And then, you know, you hear about him missing training with a, with a stomach bug. And anybody that's kind of followed sports and kind of followed the sort of the, the off-field elements of sports with any kind of vigor knows that when a player misses a game with a stomach bug, that generally tends to mean that, you know, he has a serious punctuality problem or, you know, he, he might have been he might have been enjoying the nightlife a bit, you know, the, the night or two before. And I don't know with any certainty what it is that Dembele does, Dembele does in his spare time. But it certainly seems like he's he's missing training or he's he's late to games. And it would appear that I feel like he's carrying himself with kind of the, the superstar swagger that he hasn't yet sort of earned a Barcelona. And I don't know where the club really kind of goes from here with him. Because on the one hand, I, I look at him and I see sort of, you know, as everyone does, you see sort of limitless potential. And if he sort of, if he does things the right way, if he essentially just, you know, Velcros himself to Messi and, you know, just learns from Messi and Busquets and, you know, works as hard as Suarez and all of these, if he kind of takes all of these different elements from, the current sort of crop of Barcelona superstars, there's really no limit to how great he could be. But it just kind of, it, it seems like he's kind of come in, tried to play his own game. He, you know, th there's a lot of times where even when they're playing well, there just seems to be sort of a rhythm that's missing. You know, there's just, there's a beat that's missing between whether it's him and Messi or him and Suarez. Well, they do say, they do say that he... I have I have seen that people at the matches say that you can you can find other teammates whether it's Rakitic or or Messi or particularly Suarez or Jordi Alba they do they are speaking to him quite a lot and they are in his ear um, both in it seems like both in support but in frustration at times as well and I do I just want to actually give you Suarez's comments because again yep. the problem is that. There is an issue with the player, with his maturity, whether, and it's even been reported that it's video games, not even, you know, late night life uh, out yeah. and about. And so I just want to make Suarez's comments clear because you read all the clickbaity headlines and even Suarez's comments. He says, it's not that he did not adapt because the relationship with his teammates is very good. He said, mm -hmm. or that being Suarez, we see him being happy. But as some of my teammates have said, and as Mane knows, football is a privilege for every player, and I think he needs to focus more and be more serious on some points. There are many people around him in Barcelona who we can draw inspiration from, people with great professionalism, but he deserves to be there and triumph with Barcelona. So 
if you just read those headlines that say that, oh, Suarez is frustrated with Dembele, it's that, yes, clearly people are frustrated with Dembele, but it doesn't mean that anyone involved in the club has given up on him yet. And I think that's a really important thing to note because when you look at the future of Dembele at Barcelona, and I'm going to transition just due to time here a little bit into um, you know, a, a last set of questions with Rick and Guatham, who both asked about Denise Suarez. You talk about Denise Suarez, who's kind of given up on getting out of the bench. That's what some of the reports have said. Um, clearly, and, and that, as Rick is saying, he probably doesn't have a future at the club, despite his talent. And Guatham has also noted the story about Denise Suarez to Arsenal. And so when you have a player like Denise Suarez and you compare it with Dembele, is that Barcelona are kind of locked in to trusting Dembele. And if they don't want to lose you know, a 70 million euro investment on him, because that's what he is. He's a, he is such an investment uh, financially yeah. that there is, a, a, there is almost a desire that even if he doesn't fully have a future at Barcelona, he has to have some kind of future where he's worth some kind of monetary value in return. And the same thing, but the opposite is kind of for Denise Suarez, where, uh, you know, which club is going to find not room for Denise, but it's hard to try to sell on a player that you haven't seen much of. You look at Andre Gomes at Everton, his stock has gone way up since he moved to Everton because he's playing really well. Same thing with Paco Alcacer, while Dortmund can buy him for a set amount. And then, you know, and so the resale value of Paco Alcacer, unfortunately, has a cap to it. Gomes, again, his... If you had sold him last summer, maybe he goes for fifteen million just because of you know the the, the malaise he was in at Barcelona, and yet now mm-hmm. maybe he fetches between thirty five and forty five million. And for Denis Suarez, it's kind of a similar idea where we haven't seen him. We, we've there's been such a lack of playing time for him that even when he's been on the field for that Copa del Rey game, that obviously you're not going to purchase a player who you know is has promise and you know he's still in his mid twenties. But again, not a spring chicken. He's kind of the player that he's going to be. And you're going to have to sell him, A, to a team that's going to fit his system. But I think the way that La Liga is set up right now, selling him to a La Liga team such as making return to Villarreal, I think is an even better situation than Arsenal. Now, Arsenal, are they're connected to a lot of players, particularly, again, it's January and the English media needs, or it's the international break. Again, that's another thing about when these stories are coming out. During the international yeah. break, that's when all the media comes out with everything. The English media, you know, they have to print their own papers too and sell papers. So, oh, a Barcelona player coming to Arsenal, that's an exciting thing. That's a great little headline. Uh, not even without, without even using his name, it's a great headline to sell papers. So, again, I don't know how much about him going to Arsenal. They're, again, linked with tons of players. But for me, a team like Villarreal, where, again, it would, not only it would be a return, but they're a squad that is going to be looking for not expensive players to be enforced in January, but they certainly need to add something to their team. Uh, I think Valencia, while they have uh, a little bit of a, a longer rotation, if you will, they are another team that is not doing so well in the Liga this season, but they have expectations of doing well. So I think teams like that in the Liga who are looking to reinforce their squads in that way and try to get some new fortune are certainly going to be, I'd say, the best bets. And I could see him moving to Italy, but it doesn't really fit what he does. I, I don't really know if he would fit in a Premier League. Uh, yeah, he'd fit in a Bundesliga, but again, how many guys do you see go from La Liga to Bundesliga? It doesn't happen that often. Uh, but for me, I think Denis Suarez, I would agree that I think January is a time, even if it's on loan, I, I think Barcelona would be more amendable to put him on loan. And so that when the rubber hits the road in the summertime, when it's time to sell him on, he has a little more value. I completely agree. I mean, it, with with Suarez in particular, I mean, I think with with Dembele, it, going back to what you said about Luis Suarez's comments, I mean, I think, like you said, I don't get the impression that guys on the team 
hate Dembele. I just get the impression that they're frustrated with him because you do see times where he's sort of he's you know he's going down the he's going down the wing and you know Suarez might be making a run and you can see where there would be a pass to be made and you know either Dembele doesn't make the pass he might lose the ball or you know just he overhits a cross or something like that and you see sort of this exasperated kind of throwing of hands in the air by Suarez and I don't I don't think he's doing it to sort of maliciously show him up I just think he I think everyone it's kind of plain for everyone to see how much talent he has and I think there's an exasperation there where they're like you know he's not a bad kid he has so much talent we just we want you to put it together with Suarez I think it's you know, early on when he uh, last season, I think he he got some opportunities with the first team, and I don't think he actually even played that badly. I think his his end product, I think, is is somewhat lacking. Un- if Alberti were a coach that that was inclined to, you know, kind of throw him out there and give him kind of ample opportunity to sort of work through it all, you know, I think it might work out, and I think they would probably recoup a fair amount of value on him. Uh, Valverde does not seem overly inclined to do that. And, you know, I think like you said, I think the, the sort of the optimal scenario would be to loan him out to another La Liga team. Because as you were mentioning the, the Arsenal links, I was just thinking, you know, the England, I, I don't see a player like Denis Suarez really, you know, thriving in the, in the environment of the, of the Premier League, particularly at the upper reaches. I mean, that's where Arsenal is trying to, trying to thrive. Um, I mean, I think Villarreal is, a, is obviously a team where he's had you know, he's had success in the past. Um, he's kind of, he's familiar with the community. He's familiar with kind of, you know, how, how the team functions. And, you know, I think maybe loaning him there with, you know, and giving them the option to buy at the very least will, you know, kind of pump up his, uh, his market value a, a fair bit, whether he is ultimately sold on to, to Villarreal or to another club in La Liga. Um, I, like you said, I mean, I don't think sort of Italy or, even, you know, I guess possibly Germany, but I don't, I don't see sort of the Italy, Germany, England uh, scenarios really, uh, really as the outs for him. Uh, more than anything, I mean, I think, you know, just showcasing his value within La Liga, I think will allow Barcelona to sort of recoup some value for him. I mean, I know he wasn't a, a big money signing, but had he sort of built on some of the potential he'd shown at Villarreal, it, it's conceivable that Barcelona could be looking at sort of a, you know, a, a decent payday for him, you know, even if they were looking to, to sell him on. Unfortunately, I mean, he's been kind of, he's the kind of player that I almost describe as like he's almost good in the sense that he'll he'll make a run that's really encouraging. And, you know, he'll, you know, he'll make a couple of passes or he'll, you know, kind of get the ball in a promising place, but it just kind of peters out from there. Whether it's, you know, he takes one too many touches, whether, you know, he kind of, he tries, you know, sort of an extra dribble that, that ultimately leads to a lost possession or, you know, just kind of doesn't, doesn't finish. And, uh, you know, I think giving him the opportunity, and it comes down to sort of the, the similar thing that we were talking about, in, in sort of less of this heated kind of crucible that is Barcelona, uh, I think it would allow him to sort of regain a lot of confidence, um, let him consistently play. I mean, I think that's the thing, too. It's sort of there's consistency and rhythm that, you know, some of these guys lack when they only play you know, one out of every four or five, six games. And in some cases, you know, he might only play, you know, 20 minutes. And it's really, I feel like it's it's difficult to ask somebody to be sort of a consistently excellent and locked-in player when, you know, they play maybe an hour a month. And so... Yeah, I mean, I, if, you I, don't, if you don't have form, there's, there's nothing he can do about 
about finding his, you know, it's difficult to work with your teammates. I guess you have training, but it's just a different speed when it's Absolutely. when it's game time. And if you go so long without that, then there's not much you can do. But unfortunately, we don't have time actually to, to answer Mike Miller's question. I'm going to look to answer that one in the closed Facebook group. But for yourself, Emil, we do want to ask where can people find some of your work other than, again, your occasional pieces for BarcelBlog.com? Uh, so, yeah, so uh, I've, I've had a couple of pieces up at Barca Blog, and I've also, um, on SB Nation, uh, the uh, FC Barcelona blog on SB Nation, which is BarcaBlaugranis.com. And, um, you know, I, I write, you know, fairly frequently there. And um, in addition to that, I also am on my own website, which is www.hardwoodhype.com, where, you know, outside of the, the European football world, I tend to kind of explore my thoughts on uh, NBA basketball, which is, uh, as I was mentioning, kind of, that was the, that was the first sport that I uh, kind of, you know, that drew me in as a little kid. And uh, so I'm either at hardwoodhype.com, barsablaugranis.com, and, uh, you know, looking forward to uh, contributing more to barsablog.com as well. And some of those links are also in the show notes. So again, not only do we want to thank Andy West for coming on, but also you, Emil, for checking in on La Runda and helping us out with this. Again, this was a big show, an action-packed show, one of our longest of the recent months. But thanks again to you, the listener. If you're still with us, tuning in for the whole thing, again, you can tap in your app and check out the show notes. To subscribe to the show, you can find us on social media as well. We're on Twitter, at the Barcelona Pod or at HiltonD13 for me. On Instagram, at the Barcelona Pod, our closed Facebook group where they got to ask these questions. Again, that's where our questions come from. It's tbpod.link backslash group for deeper dives and discussions. And you can also help us out on Patreon to continue making these shows at tbpod.link backslash Patreon. And this week was also our thank you Patreon week. It was a social media hashtag. And while you might not have seen a tweet, we do want to say thank you, Patreons. And there's a, a bigger thanks coming in the near future for our Patreons as well. So if we'll be having some stuff and rolling some stuff out uh, later, particularly in the new year for you. And that'll be an exciting time. But nevertheless, it's another. It's time for, to wrap up another edition of the Barcelona Podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And until next time, we'll talk to you soon. And for the Barca. Buckle up, because Metro is bringing you the best deal in wireless. Switch to Metro and get your choice of two awesome free phones from top brands like Samsung and LG with huge HD screens and tons of memory for all your pics and videos. So hurry into Metro and get your awesome free phones only at Metro. Plus sales tax and activation fee. Requires port and of eligible number not currently active on T-Mobile Network or active on Metro in past 90 days. Limit four per account or household. Restrictions apply. See store for details and terms and conditions. Right now, when you come in and switch to T-Mobile, you get the amazing iPhone 11 Pro on us with iPhone XS trade-in. <sighs> Aren't these mountains majestic? Joe, are you even looking? I'm posting these amazing pics I took with my iPhone 11 Pro. It has three cameras. Whoa, those pics are amazing. And you have service too? T-Mobile. Their newest signal goes farther than ever before. Uh, then you can look up whether these are bear tracks, right? Or we could just run. Come to a T-Mobile store today and get iPhone 11 Pro on us with iPhone XS trade-in. And right now, get four lines for just 30 bucks a line with AutoPay. Switch today. 
Contact us if you cancel or credits may stop in full price due, plus taxes and fees via 24 monthly credits for well-qualified customers with qualifying service and finance agreement. Zero down with trade-in plus 3125 times 24 months. Pre-credit price 999.99. 0% APR while supplies last.